Welcome back to the Cool Schools podcast. This week, or this two weeks, or this however frequently you listen to our podcast, we are going to be talking about the Good Shepherd Nativity Mission School in the Jesuit tradition in the Central Business District of New Orleans, Louisiana. Now, I know that was a mouthful, and we'll, we're going to spend some time unpacking what each of those bits of the uh, the name of the school mean, the connections that this school has both to this uh, nativity mission schools as well as the great tradition of Jesuit education. I'll be talking with Thomas Moran, Jr., who is the president and CEO of the school. He took a little bit of a non-traditional path into education um, and is shaking things up and really hoping to make a difference down in New Orleans. Right now, it's a K-7 school um, that is looking to expand. It is an interesting model because it actually existed in New Orleans pre-Katrina. So this school has seen the, the shifts, the incredible changes that that city has seen, uh, was there before them and has been there since after them. So, so really, Thomas, who I speak with, has a really unique perspective on that whole change that, that took place during that time period and some really great reflections on being an uh, inner-city Catholic school educator in the year 2018. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Thomas Moran, President and CEO of the Good Shepherd Nativity Mission School, New Orleans, Louisiana. So Thomas, when I peruse uh, your school's website, I see at the top the name the Good Shepherd Nativity Mission School in the Jesuit tradition. Maybe the best place for us to start is to to unpack that. So what is a nativity mission school? What does it mean to be a nativity mission school in the Jesuit tradition? It's certainly a, a lot of words on that banner, but just the, the real starting point of the school, a Jesuit priest founded Good Shepherd. He was working at Immaculate Conception Parish in the Central Business District, and he said, I'm watching poor families who work in the service industry go to work every day. Um, we need a school for their children, one that is safe, one that provides a quality education, one that is free. So the nativity model, there were other nativity schools throughout the country. A lot of Jesuit schools were nativity model. It is from 7.15 in the morning till 5 o'clock, and it's an extended school day, and it's extended through the summer. So the nativity model is really that extended piece that works to get kids caught up on skills that they're lacking and really to give them a safe environment. A lot of our kids come from homes with no mental influence. A lot of their uh, family members have been in prison. They've all, many of them have witnessed violence in the neighborhoods they live in. So the school provides a, a safe environment. So that's the nativity piece. And the Jesuit tradition was, it was founded by Jesuit priests. It is still, uh, tuition is free, um, and it's, it's paid for by benefactors, and we participate in the School Choice Louisiana State Scholarship Program, and our students are at the, are at the poverty level below, so they're all free and reduced lunch students. So the state voucher program pays for a portion of their tuition, and then the rest is raised through uh, donors and foundations, um, about 55% of our Revenue comes from the state voucher program. Uh, it's about $8,900 per student who participate in the voucher program and make up the gap between that and what actually kid a student. 
interestingly enough, the, the Jesuit priest who founded the school was my high school principal, extremely dynamic Jesuit priest. Um, so he had come to Jesuit high school when we started as students. So we knew him then. And I uh, started my career in the business world and accounting, got into education and was back in the business world. And a, a good friend of mine, a class, high school classmate of mine is on the Good Shepherd board. And he called and said, we've got a need for a president of Good Shepherd School. And I said, Johnny, I'm, I'm not interested at all. And he said, we're, we're looking to grow this. And we're looking for somebody that's got the background that you have. So that kind of started the dialogue. And then fast forward 2016 in February, I joined and it's been a whirlwind since with growth and enrollment and uh, a big building project to move the school and hopefully plans to expand to multiple schools at some point in time. So what grades do you serve and how many children do you serve? We are kindergarten through seventh grade. Uh, New Orleans is a little unique in that the elementary schools and the archdiocese end at seventh grade. And the eighth graders go to high school. So we're kindergarten through seventh. And then next year, we'll be adding a pre-K-4 program when we move in our new facility. Um, and the facility we're building is about 40,000 square feet as opposed to 15,000 square feet. So, yes, it is. It's uh, And it's scheduled to be done August 1st. It's been a intense construction process. So we, we bought a property in May of 2016, I believe it was. And then started the fundraising piece and the new market tax credit piece and eventually tore down last year in May it was demolition and pylons were driven in October and we'll be finished August 1 of this year. So it's been a, about a 10 month building process and um, it'll allow us to add the pre-K four and two sections in every grade level instead of one uh, and enrollment wise. We were hovering at about 100 for about a two-year period. Two years ago, we were at 105. This year, we're at 158, 157 or 58 as of today. And then next year, we will approach 275 on enrollment. So it's it's been a substantial growth in enrollment in a short period of time. Well, that's a big building. So one question I have for you is uh, in lots of cities around the country that are thinking about opening new Catholic schools in particular. Um, there has been some tension as the, the declining enrollment that we've seen in traditional Catholic schools with some folks within the community saying, we need to double down and invest in our existing Catholic schools. We don't want to necessarily start a new one. Do you know how that conversation played out in New Orleans? New Orleans is a little bit different. I mean, the Archdiocese of New Orleans has been a a pretty robust archdiocese for a number of years with successful schools and the demographics of the New Orleans area, I don't know, probably 30 plus years ago started to shift and people moved to the suburbs and some of the suburban schools really took off in enrollment and some of the inner city schools started to struggle uh, just as people moved and the only remaining people who were left in a lot of cases were some who were not as wealthy. So those parishes lost some of their substantial funders and, and tuition paying families. And back in the day, the religious used to stay at most of those schools. So a priest or a nun would teach and either didn't get a salary or got a 
a lesser salary than a layperson. So it was, they were cheaper schools to run. Uh, that's no longer the case. So a lot of inner city schools are, are struggling and in some ways dying on the vine when it comes to finances. And you're dealing a lot of times with a population of students who have additional needs that need to be met, academic needs, social needs, family needs. And it's um, inner city schools are expensive to run. Uh, our school in particular, we employ a social worker. We have um, two interventionists who specialize in math and ELA to handle our our students who have quite simply have achievement gaps they they didn't have the schooling growing up some had come from failing public schools so you, you've got academic challenges that are costly to try to remediate and it's a it's a challenging situation in the city schools um, we're a little unique in that uh, we are a member of the archdiocese by agreement uh, our board runs and owns our school um, we teach religion we teach uh, the catholic faith we do mass uh, but we are owned by our, by our board which is a little unique other schools in the archdiocese are owned by the archdiocese sure. so we've got a little more flexibility in that regard uh, and mobility and we became participants in the school choice program when it started in 2007 or 2008 with 100 percent of our students being voucher students so in that way we're a lot like a charter school we serve the same population that the charters serve so um I jokingly refer to us sometimes as kicked with Jesus, but people say, what's your school like? It's, we're like the charter, but we're <laughs> like a Catholic that. version, a Catholic version of it. Uh, the clientele we serve are the same ones the charters are serving. We're reimbursed at a percentage of what the charters are reimbursed at because it's a school choice program. Sure. And then we, we fundraise the rest, so. So now where do you get your teachers? I imagine it might be a tough sell. Uh, with the extended day and extended year, uh, how do you swing that? It uh, it is a challenge. Uh, we've we've managed to really be able to recruit and attract some some quality folks. You get sometimes it's the young idealistic you know, Teach for America Jesuit Volunteer Corps types that like this piece. In other cases, um, some folks who are close to or retired from the public school system that have connections to the Catholic faith, often love this kind of mission. So those are two pools of, of potential places to go recruit. And it's a compelling mission. So it does attract people. And what we try to do on the the last hour of our day is kind of an, an enrichment period, we call it. Some of our teachers do not work that piece. So it's not a, you have to work that. So um, the ones who want to are paid a little more as a stipend. Uh, in other instances, we will form out that last hour to someone who just comes in for the last hour of the day. So it it makes it more manageable at that point. In the summer piece, the school year ends. We take a week and shut down. They come back for six more weeks. Um, it's a little bit less in the summer. A nine to three is the time of the, the schedule during the summer. So um, it's more of a six-hour hit in the summer, and not everybody works the summer. It's a less of a need the the summer the first half of the day in the summer is an academic focus and the second half tends to be more of athletics and field trips and art and coding and and, and so forth so it's a the summer is a little bit different pace for a teacher um, 
and not everybody works the summer. So that makes it a little more manageable. Sure. And I'd imagine, too, in a city like New Orleans, there's a lot of competition for great teacher talent. And I'm kind of curious, you know, is it New Orleans is clearly a destination where lots of young ideal, idealistic people who want to work in education go down. So I could imagine that being a boon to your school, that you have a big talent pool to draw from. But you also have a lot of competition from charter schools and others. So how do you how do you navigate that that landscape where you've got all these people, but you've got a lot of competition for them? And it's, there are a lot of schools, charters, publics, and privates that are all competing for the same pool. And, and the pool is probably not as deep as you would imagine. Mm. And most people that, you know, are looking, <laughs> look at the salary side, will look at the charter or public first because they generally pay more than uh, a Catholic or a private school. So we've tried to, the best we can, to come close to Close to meeting the charter level of pay, just because you're you've got that same kind of kid you're serving in the same environment with extended days and summer programs and so forth. So we're really in more competition for teachers with with charter schools than we are with our fellow uh, Catholic schools that are inner city Catholic schools. So um, we've we've kind of we've kind of treated ourselves and lived in both of those worlds, the, the Catholic world and Look, let's face it, we compete with the charters for our students. It's um, That's where our students come from, and we don't control our admissions process. We participate in what is called the one-half process, which is the same process our charters use. You say you've got X number of seats, people choose you. If you've got an opening and they choose you and the, the program runs through and says that's where you're slot- slotted, that's who you get. It, it could be a fourth grader who reads at a first grade level and that's your student and you've got to work with them and oh by the way they'll be tested on the high stakes state test as a fourth grader so that's the the admissions world we uh we live in is open enrollment and anyone who says they want us and we've got a slot we take them so we literally work with the same mindset as a public school is we don't turn anybody away um, that chooses to come to us and so now, is that out of necessity uh, in order to get students? Was that a conscious decision on your part to participate in the one-app system? Well, the, when we chose to participate in the voucher system, that was the conscious choice. Uh, before that, the first, from 01 until 07, 08, whenever the voucher program started, Good Shepherd was just a tuition-free school with its own admissions process. And the first year it started in 01, it was just, kindergarten a class of kindergartners and a class of first graders and one grade level was added each year so it was a slow and deliberate growth initially um and then um in hurricane katrina hit and there was decimation at that point with the enrollment and um, the conscious choice was to go to the the uh school voucher route it's it's a it's a known source of funding it is um like I said, 55% of our revenue comes from that. So uh, for this year, uh, you know, it's probably 1.2 million comes from the state. So without that, you'd have to go raise everything, which is a difficult proposition. So the, the voucher program ends up being your largest, you know, contribution to what it costs to educate a student. And then we go fundraise the rest from foundations and individual donors. So it's uh, the goal is to minimize the cost per child so you don't have as much to raise naturally 
but um, it has, for the most recent historical past year, been about a 55, 45% split on voucher money was 55% and fundraising 45%. So um, it was a conscious choice because it's a, it's a large block of, of revenue that comes in every year. And you mentioned Hurricane Katrina. What impact did Katrina have on your school? I mean, I mean, I imagine it impacted the students and and perhaps the the building itself and and the teachers. We we think of now so much of education in New Orleans post Katrina, um, but but your school existed before and after. So how how was it how was it affected? It, the building, physical building itself, had very little impact. The the central business district and that area you know, was not like some of the outlying neighborhoods in terms of flooding and some minimal damage. But uh, the real issue was most of the families lived in neighborhoods that were decimated. Sure. Kids were all over the country. So we're trying to find as many as they could. And, you know, they scrambled back and got the ones they could and said, we're going to educate you. And the board at that point in time made a conscious decision to say, look, whatever it takes, we'll spend whatever we have. And if this is the last thing we do is educate these kids that come back and we exhaust every dollar. That'll be the way our mission ended. But uh, through some strong, you know, bulldog approach by the board and going out and getting more donors and finding kids and then ultimately deciding to join the school voucher program, the school started to flourish again. And it's uh, with each passing year flourished even more from an enrollment side and a creative side. So, um, and, Hurricane Katrina brought the charter movement to New Orleans and in a lot of ways was a game changer for the public public school environment, which, you know, was struggling uh, in New Orleans for a long time. And it kind of gave the education folks a clean slate. And, and ironically, what Father Thompson started in 01, you could argue he was a, a leading proponent of charter schools before charters were down here. Sure. He basically did a charter school. He started his own school funded his own school and took the kids nobody else necessarily wanted or were kids who were impoverished. So he, he was, a, you know, had, had some real vision as to what could be done in this city. Um, and he did it on the backs of people he knew that were wealthy and committed to uh, a Jesuit mission, which was to go take care of those who were underserved. And he, he pushed that and was dynamic enough to make it a reality. So, you know, I can argue he's the father of charter schools. Uh, <laughs> never been, he's never been uh, labeled as such or maybe thought of as such, but uh, the whole charter movement does almost what he did several years before that. And, and we continue to live in that charter world, in essence. Um, you know, it's not, we're not a pure charter, but we're serving the same kids and, and live in the same world. So now how do you measure success? How do you know that what you're doing is working? <laughs> it's uh, the state certainly measures your success through testing, <laughs> which is uh, that's not necessarily the way that, uh, you know, you purely measure success. It is the growth in a child uh, and every part of that growth. It's a, a faith growth, a, 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 a feeling success growth. It's confidence and it's, it's learning and, improving your skill set and preparing you to become something that you were created to be. So it is, we really work on helping kids to improve and, um, and our kids hold their own on the state testing. Uh, we, we're in the top five schools on 
consistently of the 39 natural schools we generally rank, you know, in the four or five slot, plus or minus a couple each year. And we do that by taking whoever comes. And we also take transfer students at all grade levels. We'll take a transfer in sixth grade. And it's tough to make up skills gaps that late in the game. Normally is a good two or three year period to make up, you know, a year's worth of deficit. You almost need three years of intense remediation to get that student caught back up. So, um, and we, we follow our kids all the way through high school and college. Our, our real measurement of success is how do we help the students that come to us break the cycle of poverty that they're in? They were born into a, a poor situation through no choice of their own. And a lot of their parents are very hardworking people who are trying to break the cycle themselves. So we work as much as we can with parents. And um, our new building will offer us an opportunity to really become a community center. Helping independent education classes, parent job training classes, and community education classes in our building. We've got a huge cafeteria area that seats as many as 200 people. Um, we're looking to become a, a catalyst in what is a poor neighborhood, uh, one that is still showing the effects of Hurricane Katrina where we're moving. It's uh, the seventh ward, and it's a uh, the neighborhood we, we're moving into was. A, a very prominent middle-class African-American neighborhood uh, 50, 60 years ago with um, very hardworking families, a lot of artisans and craftsmen and, and laborers and workers and, and uh, a lot of the leading political families in in New Orleans area grew up in the AP Toro neighborhood and, and went on to law school and became attorneys and, and doctors and so forth. So it's a neighborhood that is on the cusp of being revitalized and our project, our economic development project, is essentially an eleven and a half million dollar project. With by the time you buy the land and pay all the fees with architects and contractors, and you build out, um, and it's one that you'll allow us to almost double in size, and that means twenty to twenty five new jobs, quality jobs, in an area that many would say had been depressed since Hurricane Katrina. So um, that allowed us to get new market tax credits because we're we're helping a neighborhood uh, that needed it with some development and, and job creation. So that's been a big part of, um, you asked how we exist earlier. I mean, we will come out of this project with no debt. Um, we sold our existing facility for about $3 million. We raised, currently have raised over $4 million. We've got about 2.4, 2.5 million on a new market tax credit um, benefit. And the real goal is to raise six million. We've got a couple of big asks still out there. And um, if we raise that, we won't have to touch our reserves. If not, we'll tap into our reserves, which are several million dollars that we've been good stewards of our resources over the years, knowing that if if the state ever does anything with the voucher program, we need to have reserves ready to continue to run our school while we find other sources of funding. So we've been good stewards of our resources and it's allowed us to smartly and successfully grow to where we'll be at 275 kids. And the, the real goal to make the model school that we have truly successful is to, to reach that network level, which is a three school level that allows you to apply for larger national grants, uh, grants that work on student achievement, making up 
gaps that students have in, in the core subjects, STEM education, technology grants, and so forth. So um, while we do noble work now to the national level, they, they look at us and say, you're just one school, we'd like you to make more impact. And when you do, we'll be there with you. So the, the strategic piece as a board and school leadership is how do we over the next five to 10 years smartly grow into additional schools that will allow us to get some game changing funding. And right now we're pretty much tapped on a local market for funding. The local multimillionaires and billionaires uh, and foundations, but um, that's a limited resource and everybody lines up at those same doors. So our goal really is to expand to a national level. And that's always introduced to you is through folks at the Drexel Fund. Sure. Who, who, uh, who love what we're doing and are big proponents of growth in seats in school choice states and Louisiana being one of those. And um, we are one of the few schools that they've been looking at to potentially fund. So they've been impressed with our growth, our growth plan and our academic success. So it's, um, that's a new national partnership and it truly is a partnership where they want you to grow smartly. They're not looking for you to grow too fast to where you're, you implode and you, you fold. Uh, it's a smart growth where you are able to, to fund that growth and not tap into um, reserves and go bone dry on, on that. Uh, it's how do you get ahead of the curve and, and find the donors. And The national piece is key. And, and for a little school on, you know, in the central business district that had a hundred kids and, you know, was running out of a shoebox from when it first started, basically 30 kids and, open the doors and start teaching them. And it's not as complex, but as you grow, it it becomes more complex and um, collecting data and reporting those results, uh, foundations and national players want to see data and want to see results and want to see that you've charted progress and that you're financially viable and that you use your resources properly. So a lot of moving parts for a little bitty school um, and has really made a difference in, in where kids are are going when they leave us. The very first kids who started with us in 01 as kindergartners and first graders actually started graduating college last year. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there were 12 students in that class. Six of those students graduated in four years from college, which kids from the wealthiest boarding schools don't graduate in four years. Yeah. Um, and then the other six in that class or in some form or fashion of, of finishing up degrees. And um, ironically, one girl from that first graduating Good Shepherd class is coming to teach science for us next year as a teacher. You asked where we get teachers. Well, we're getting one of our own now. Oh, that's great. Um, she's a, I think, biology and chemistry double major at Dillard University. And she taught this past year in one of the local charter schools. And um, she, I'd, I'd say we stole her, but we did a, uh, I did a post it on my social media account saying we had openings and I, I knew she would respond to that when I did that. So, well, I didn't technically steal her. Uh, it was a pretty direct uh, post <laughs> that I put out there knowing that she would see it. So she'll, uh, she actually signed her paperwork and contract with us uh, two or three days ago. So that's an exciting story to tell where she'll be able to come back and share with the students she teaches and on how the school changed her life. A very successful girl, uh, did extremely well in one of the local all-girls Catholic schools, Mount Cornwall Academy, and very involved and, and 
succeeded at Dillard and is, is a proud, proud graduate of Good Shepherd and everywhere she's been, she's represented those those schools well and herself well. So it's an exciting time in that regard. Yeah, that's great. So I maybe I want to close with a question. Maybe a, you spoke a lot about the future of the school. Maybe looking backwards a bit. I know there are some people who listen to this podcast who are school leaders, or there are some who are teachers who want to be school leaders. And I was wondering if you could think back to uh, you know when when you got the phone call and you decided to do this. Uh, imagine now we are then. What piece of advice would you give yourself, sort of knowing what you know now back at that, that time period? So it could be something that you would have done differently. It could have been something that you – just a lesson that you learned that you wish you'd known at the beginning. What, what is that advice you'd give yourself? I, um, I, I tend to enjoy each day as it is and, and for what it is. And I, just as a personality and leadership style, don't often look back with too much regret on anything or question what was there. We always move to do the best we can do each day, knowing that the world we exist in is chaotic. Um, and I think that that might be the one thing that you don't know until you get into it. The whole charter, inner city school, state voucher program, it is by nature a chaotic environment. Um, it is moving parts with the state, the city, the poorest of poor people systems that are sometimes complex for them to navigate when it comes to the enrollment process. And then the, the funding piece is always a challenge in Baton Rouge. And it, it's a, you're dealing with tough situations. So the chaotic world that you live in, but we always say the more chaos there is, the more opportunity we have because sure. we're prepared for it. So, and we don't mind jumping into the chaotic situation and a situation most people Look, most people run from inner city education and abandon folks who are poor. Um, as a society, we we don't always have that focus that we need because it's not easy. Uh, so we've excelled because we have not been afraid of it, and we know the impact that is there. Um, so I guess whatever your question was at the beginning that I've, I've rambled on through, <laughs> I, guess it's the, I guess it's the knowing and having lived the chaotic piece. Um, you kind of knew that was there. Once you're in it, you really see how chaotic it can become. Um, and like I said, that has been our advantage and our opportunity is we are from a personnel side, an experienced side, real experienced board leadership that we have and um, real attuned to the Baton Rouge and Washington, D.C. lobbyist groups that, that deal with school choice. Um, we're heavily involved in that. And. So nothing that occurs scares us. It's, um, well, it may be that, that chaos and uncertainty. We know we know about it and we know we're prepared for it. And we've assembled quality people on a school leadership side, on a support staff side, and fundraising side, and, uh, curriculum and technology side. We, we've brought some of the best and the brightest on board to handle the now, but also with a very clear and keen eye on what's next. We're not... We're not here to be just a school of, you know, 350 kids in this one site. Where can we go to change a neighborhood just like the one we're moving into? Um, when Father Thompson started this mission, there's an article in one of the local uh, uh, weekly newspapers, The Gambit, and he said, I want eight of these schools in the eight most impoverished neighborhoods. So 
Um, as you kind of look around the different pockets of poverty in New Orleans and the surrounding areas, there are very easily six areas of heavy poverty where schools have pretty much left or fallen to either disrepair or, or no results uh, or limited results that we could we could move into. It's how do you find the, the building, and hopefully at cheap or no cost, an existing building, and you hope that the state funding stays uh, secure and would even increase in an ideal world. And can you raise the rest of it? And the idea to raise the rest of it is uh, to reach a network level where you get more bang on a national level. Um, you know, in essence, a school like the size that we're going to run is probably going to be a budget in a $3.5 million range. Uh, so imagine three schools, each with a $3.5 million budget. Um, you've it got, starts to add up. You've got $10.5 million you need every year. And oh, by the way, you're going to get 55% from the government. So you've got five or six million, maybe. You've got to go raise four plus million dollars every year. That's, if you stop and look at it, it's scary. Uh, but then you say, all right, you go get a national technology grant. You get a believe and succeed grant. Each of those grants is 1.5 million. That's how you make it happen. Um, you don't do it by, you know, you can't keep having fundraising events. We have an excellent golf tournament at Dancing with the Stars event. We bring in net of about $300,000 or, or more between three and $400,000 in events. You're not able to do an event at each of those schools. That's a citywide event. Sure. And then it's stuck at that level of, you know, while they're very good for one school, when you get three and four schools, you've got to find other other resources to tap. And there are some very wealthy uh, and generous family foundations and corporate foundations at a national level that love to fund schools like ours. So it's a matter of getting in front of those folks, telling the story, and showing that they, they wealthy people want to see results. They don't want to hear talk um they want to see data they want to see real results on an academic side and a, a staffing side and, and a finance side so we've got you know external audited financial statements for years we've had to tell the world we're just as concerned about managing our resources as you are when you give us the money and we're ahead of the academic curve and track that data just because it's the tool for us to help our students so um We've put all those mechanisms in place, and essentially, we've built what is basically a back office with our single school, and we could easily build on top of that, knowing that a technology person, a curriculum person, a fundraising person, a social worker person, and so forth, a CEO, exists at a network level and can run the three, four, five, six school umbrella of schools and network of schools that you would have. So. We've started to and, and really built a robust team of people who are prepared. Uh, it's now how do you find the find the resources uh, to successfully build without you never want to damage what is already there and been you know people have worked so hard to establish it. It's a smart and deliberate growth, and that's where is is you know CEO leadership level that I'm at and our, our board level. We've got to be extremely smart and diligent in how we we manage that growth and, and grow at a proper pace. Otherwise you, otherwise you run the risk of losing what you built. So we're good stewards of our, our resources and our vision. And um, that's been the nicest part about what we've done. 
Well, I tell you, I think that's about as good of a place to stop as any. I know you're a very busy man, so thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Let me know if you ever need another podcast. Give me a call. I'll be available. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that conversation. Part of my mind just goes to summertime in New Orleans and teaching and going on field trips. I think this, the, the teachers and the educators that are affiliated with schools that are doing that deserve our praise and long holidays and high pay, but perhaps I'm just doing some, some editorializing. Why well, I, I really enjoyed that conversation. I think, as I said at the beginning, having that unique pre-post-Katrina perspective talking about the teacher labor market that exists down in New Orleans and how schools are having to adapt, talking about one app and the private school choice programs that exist in the state. So many different forces are converging in the city of New Orleans. So having that on-the-ground perspective, I found super valuable. I hope all of you did too. As always, you know what I'm going to say next. Please subscribe to our podcast. Now, it's not just me. It's not just cool schools. I know you're here for the cool schools. But we also have lots of other fun interviews that we do on here. We do our own um, podcast content that we put out where, where we're just talking. We bring outside people. So please subscribe to this podcast. Give it a review if the spirit moves you. Um, good ones are nice. I would always appreciate a kind review talking the the dulcet tones of my voice coming through your, your headphones or your car speakers or wherever you are right now. But it helps other people um, find out about our podcast. And also, as always, subscribe to our email list. We put out tons of awesome content, research, policy analysis, communications. You can keep up to date with going on uh, with what's going on uh, in the world of school choice around the country with one simple email sign up. Not that many people can promise you that, but we here at EdChoice absolutely can. Finally, if you know a cool school, send it to me. Tweet it at me at MQ underscore McShane. Email it to me. Pass it on to someone who you know met me at some point and has my phone number. Have them send it to me. Always on the lookout for new cool schools to profile. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Hmm.